Say this verse. Say this verse with me. If you can, I think most of you will be able to if you've been here for the last several weeks. Now may the God of hope fill you up with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 15 and verse 13 is where that is found. And let's do it one more time. If you need to, if you need to look at your copy of Scripture, it may even be up here. That's fine too. But if, you can, if it's becoming portable, that means you don't have to read it from something. It's working in your heart. Let's do one more time. It says, now, now means this. Now means right now. Now doesn't mean yesterday. Now doesn't mean when all the bills get paid, when all the medical records are fine, when, when my ship comes in. Now, now, may the God of hope, say this with me, fill you up with all joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not really that big a deal for us to be filled with hope if everything's going the way we'd like for it to go. If um, our questions are all answered, our bills are all paid, everybody's well, job's doing good, profit margins are way up there, not a big deal to have a lot of hope when uh, all the ducks are in a row. But it is, it is a supernatural thing for somebody to be walking with hope abounding in their hearts, overflowing, effervescing, radiating out of their lives, when it just seems as if there's no reason to be hope, to have hope, to be filled with hope. That's what this verse is talking about. It's not a formula as to how to get everything done right and not a formula as to how to, how to quicken God's pace to solve the problems. It's talking about something that literally and actually right now in the middle of whatever it is that we're walking through, whoever it is that's mad at us, whatever mess we've gotten ourselves in relationally or in business or in other, any, any category you want to pull from, the supernatural part of this is that God is able to bathe your heart, to saturate your thoughts, to bring a measure of peace and tranquility to a life because hope has been raised up in our hearts when there should be no reason to hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit, the hope comes. Now, what is we've talked about, what's the definition of hope? And it doesn't matter whether you look in a Webster's Dictionary, a Collegiate Dictionary, um, or a New Testament original language uh, dictionary. The, the meaning is the same. Hope has two parts to it. Hope has a dream. Hope has a wish. Hope has a desire. That's part number one. But it's always going to be coupled with an expectation or an anticipation that what I've been wishing for and dreaming about and longing for literally, actually, one day is going to come into being. It's going to happen. I don't know when, I don't know how, I don't know what the wrapper is going to look like, but it's settled and working strongly in my heart that, that this dream, this wish, this desire has a destination. There's a point in time when I will see what I've been desiring and wishing for. That is exactly the same word, folks, that is used to describe God 
your Father. Now may the God of hope, the God of that kind of hope, the God of the, that, that understands what it is to have a dream, a wish, a desire for specific things, for specific people, for specific outcomes of, among nations and situations of all types. Now may the God of hope, who is at home with desires, wishes, longings, but also is the one who has the ability to produce, to bring into effect what is being wished for and is being desired. He is the God of hope, the God of hope. And we are encouraged by the writing of the Apostle Paul through the work of the Spirit, putting that down on paper, that we're encouraged to set our hope on that God of hope. That it won't be wasted energy. It won't be wasted time. Our dreams will not, will not fail us when they originate with him and we look to him to bring them into being. Now may the God of hope, this morning, right where we are, right in the middle without anything changing, without any difference in where we live, without any difference in who our friends are, and without any difference, thank goodness, to who we're married to, without any difference in, in our shoe size, our hair color, or what, without any change. Right now, right now, right now, right now, may the God of hope fill you up when? Right now. With what? With all joy and peace in believing so that, so that I may abound in hope. And where is all this coming from? By the power of the Holy Spirit. All right, now this, just, if you don't hear anything else, just let that work in your spirit this morning. Keep looking back down at that pastor's scripture. Look at the word of God. Look at what God wanted you to see. He preserved the writing of Scripture. Miraculous it was in its coming, but miraculous it has been in its preservation. There have, been, there have been skeptics and powerful rulers across the centuries to want to burn the Bibles and destroy the copies of the Word of God, but they're all in the grave and you still hold a Bible in your lap. God has protected His Word. It's there for a reason. It's there for direction, but it's there for encouragement. It's there for us to understand what we have the right to believe God for what he is like, but also what he enjoys doing, what, what he desires to do in us and for us and, 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 and working mightily in our hearts. So, so look at that verse again. Hold on to it. And we're going to go a little bit further this morning on, the, on this matter of hope. Turn another page in the study of hope. And, and we're going to wrap it around this, this thought. Where, where hope thrives, where, her, where hope thrives, where it grows, where it's strong, where it's verdant, where it is, it is fruitful, it's working. Where, where does hope thrive? And, and along that line, we've, we've got the three questions that we have a right to ask the God in whom we're hoping. And we've mentioned that before, that it's, just, it's, it's more important who you're hoping in than what you're hoping for. Because if I'm hoping in somebody or in something that does not have the power to deliver on the hope, deliver on the expectation, then I'm wasting my time. But when we're told that he's called the God of hope, that means he has the ability to put a wish, to put a desire, to put a dream, to put a longing in a heart, 
And at the same time as he is doing that, he has the ability to plant within that heart an expectation, an anticipation that one day what's being wished for is going to happen. We have permission, we have encouragement to anchor our hope in the God of hope. All right? So, so these three questions that, that might be asked to that God, with regard to that God. Number one, does he care? Does he care about me? I mean, I understand he's got power and I understand that he, he knows about dreams and desires and longings. But, I mean, that's all well and good. But does he care anything really about me? Does he love me? Do I matter to him? Am I just another name on a long list of lineage of all these families of, of the world and I'm just one little name, I'm just one little footnote, I'm just one little asterisk? Am I just a number, a population number to him? Or does he know me? Does he, does he care about me? We spent some time there last week and, and, and I'll just summarize kind of where we were last week, trying to answer that question. Does he care about me? And the first reference that we gave from the scripture is that famous statement from the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 3, verse 10, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. It was God who loved the world first. It wasn't you or me as a member of the world deciding one day we're going to love God. That would never have happened if he had not first loved us. First John's clear on that. We love because he first loved us. He didn't start loving you when you cleaned your act up. He didn't start loving you when you quit cussing or when you quit whatever you were doing. That you could say, well, that was a big sin. That was a big deal. I knew that was kind of between me and God. He didn't start loving you when, he, when you stopped something. He didn't start loving you when you just found a Christian friend. He didn't start loving you recently. The scripture says that you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That means that before your mother was born, Jesus, the Father, God knew you. Didn't just, didn't just know about you, knew you intimately knew you specifically, and the time came, and we're alive, and we have the ability to choose right from wrong, and we'd chosen a bunch of wrong, but something began to work in our hearts, some way, somehow, you've got your own story, that all the stuff that I used to not have a problem with, I began to just be uncomfortable with that, or see the emptiness of it. And, but more than that, somewhere or another, I just started, gotten in, started to get interested in, 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 in God or church or people that I knew that in the past that seemed like they knew the Lord. That this thing about Jesus and who he was, instead of just being an irrelevant thing to me, somehow something was going off inside me or you, you put your own name to it, and I began to be drawn to him. I, 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 something, something that I didn't even really understand began to work inside me, and I began to be drawn to the Lord. How are you going to love a God you can't see? How are you going to make a God who, who doesn't have to talk and he's invisible ever say a word to you? How are you going to get the infinite God of all creation to show affection toward you if he doesn't choose to? 
He chose to. For God so loved the world, unrepentant, unbelieving, profane, godless, rude, cruel, all the characteristics you could put attached to the world of which we were a part of. God so loved that world. Not the repentant world, not the church-going world, not the Sunday school world, not the good people world. The world as the world was, the world as the world is. God so loved the world. That's Jesus. That's God in the flesh speaking and giving the background as to why he's come to this earth. He said, I didn't come to judge the world, but I came that the world might be forgiven, the world might be saved. He loved you first. He came up with the idea of pursuing you, not you pursuing him. Somewhere along the line, we've got to get that all rearranged in our theological thought process. Where suddenly, sometimes as believers, we get to thinking, well, I just need to keep chasing God down. I just need to keep pursuing the Lord. Yes, we need to pursue the Lord. But how are you going to pursue somebody you can't see? How are you going to carry on a conversation with somebody who doesn't speak audibly? If it's not something being done by the power of the Holy Spirit, by the living presence of Jesus working in our hearts in concert with what is in the heart of God, it will never happen. It starts with Him. It starts with Him. That's why it's so important that we not turn a deaf ear, that we not, we, we not take lightly these seasons and these times when it's like the Lord really is close and he is present and he is making himself known. Those are powerful times and those are precious times and they they speak of his heart for you. Does he care about me? Does he care about me? The one in whom I'm putting my trust, does he really care about me? The scripture will say, the scripture will shout it. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. I love Ephesians chapter 2 that's just so explicit at that point, and I want to read a little bit of it to you. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, and you, and he's writing to the church, ones who'd come to know the Lord in in Ephesians, or in Ephesus in the area, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins. You weren't alive, you were dead, spiritually dead. But then skip down to verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. That's past tense. He he loved us before we ever were coming to him, before we were ever changed, before we were ever drawn. But God being rich in mercy. Now what's mercy? Mercy is that heart that works inside God and he puts it in our hearts to be reflective of his heart that will care for folks who can't give anything back who will have a heart to help people who are trapped in the misery of their junk, trapped in the bondage of their sin, that can't escape on their own, that have nothing to give to God. Scripture says, Paul would say, God is rich in that thing. God is rich in mercy. He's rich in every other characteristic too, but he's especially rich in mercy. Because of his great love, with which he loved us. Do you see past tense? That means before we were saved, he loved us. 
Before we ever started reading the Bible, he loved us. Before you ever got baptized, he loved you. His great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. He made us alive together with Christ. That's this, all of a sudden, seemingly out of the blue, some of the words that were spoken to us years ago seem to begin to make sense. That maybe there is a God, and maybe there is a Jesus, and maybe there is a way to be forgiven, and maybe there's a way to get the guilt and the shame off of my life, and maybe there is a hope for a new person to be created in me. Stuff we blew off. Now we've begun to wonder about it. Hope that it may be true. Even when we're dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. By God's doing, you have been saved. Nobody saved themselves, folks. And nobody ever found the Lord on their own. If there's going to be any finding, he's going to do the hunting, and he's going to do the locating, and he's going to do the finding. And it says he does that. So if he's found you, if you've come to know him and his love for you, in that place of sins being forgiven, and getting another shot at life, Getting the chance to go again. That all happened because it started with him and because he loves you. We can set our hope in someone who we didn't have to romance and we didn't have to convince we were worthy of being loved and we didn't have to try to put together a a portfolio to show all of our merits. It started with him when he knew us at the raw material that we're made out of, but he knew us in our worst. He knew what was coming, and he still loved us. He still loved us, and he still loves us today. I can put my hope in a God who loves me, but I can have doubts about, I can back away from someone called God, and I'm not sure he gives a flip about me. Scripture says... Oh, yes, he does. Let it in 18 inches, folks. That, that, that is that's one, of the, one of the most powerful battles that has to be fought within us. To receive, to walk in, to be influenced by the love of God working in our hearts. Paul would say it in Romans chapter 5, the love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Oh, my goodness. So I ask that question. Does he care? Does he care? Hope will thrive where there is a sense of knowing in your heart that the Lord really loves you and the Lord cares about you. You say, well, there are all these bad things happening to me. The Lord doesn't cause all the bad things to come. There's a real enemy. There is a Satan. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. So where there is stealing, killing, and destroying going on in our lives and in our relationships, don't blame God for that. There's another force, another supernatural force at work on the earth. His name is Satan, the devil. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. But the Lord Jesus Christ, the goodness of God, rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, is the one in whom we're placing our hope. Now, I can, I, can, I can holler that. I can wave my hands. I can spit to the third row right there, just all fired up. But I'm telling you, this isn't about information. This is about 
impartation by the power of the Holy Spirit, which results in transformation to the glory of God. You got to let it in, folks, instead of just treating it like one, one mother's other subject matter. Oh, well, I know God loves me. Well, no, you don't if you don't feel it. Love is an emotion. It is a choice. It is a conviction. And here I am screaming and hollering, my face all scooched up and telling how much God loves you. I need to... I need to brighten the countenance up. I understand that. I get that. But this is important. If, if we got to stop treating it like it's a theological concept. Oh, I understand the love of God. No, you don't unless you feel it. I'm going to say that again. I don't know God's love for me just by having it being a cranial activity, an academic pursuit. I know the love of God is real. When I feel the love of God, you say, well, that's a little too touchy-feely for me. Then you need to find you another religion. Now may the God of hope. Hope is an emotion. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. All of those things have their roots in human emotions. Open we need, and that's the good news about this. That's why Paul would be saying now may the God of hope fill you up. It's because the circumstances of their lives and the battles that they were going to be facing would war against the presence of hope inside them. That emotion of hope could be drained. So he's saying, by the power of the Spirit, the God of hope wants you to know the, the results of hope in your life, which means there's joy even in the middle of the storm. There's peace even though war's breaking out. So that you may abound in hope, overflow hope. By the, it is a feeling, 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 it is a feeling. And if I don't have the feeling of hope, I'm not living and walking in hope. Therefore, for Paul to put it this way, he understands how vital and how critical it is for the believer to be walking in hope, which is an emotion. To say I have hope, but I don't have energy, but I'm depressed, but I'm discouraged, is to make two contradictory statements. Hope has the power to put to death depression. Hope has the power to put to death just a lethargy when there is a hope. Now, you get now, right now, right now, may the God of hope fill you up with all joy. What is that? An emotion. And peace. What is that? That is an emotion in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Folks, if somebody's wanting to quit this morning, somebody's wanting to give up, somebody's thinking it hadn't been worth it, all of those things, all of those things can be dealt with when the power of the Spirit of God infuses you with fresh hope. It's the hope that is from God. It is not the hope that comes from just sizing up the circumstances and weighing the possibilities and considering what different ones are saying to me about what might happen or might not happen. It is something that the Spirit of God is able to drop within your spirit it is a knowing and you're knower. It is a confidence that it came from God because there's a sense of a familiar sound to that voice and that impression, that moving upon your heart. 
And there comes along with that a confident expectation. It may not be this year. It may not be next year. It may not be when I'm here in this, in this job or whatever, but what I know is what God has said, what God has put in my heart, God's going to do. God's going to do. God's going to do. Does he care? Does he care? If, if you're struggling with that, ask him to show you. Ask him to show you how much he loves you. Don't, don't be trotting over to the... If, if, if it doesn't come from the Lord, it's not going to last. Lord, I need to know again. And he knows what we've been walking through. He knows what you've been facing. Lord, I need to know. Do you love me? Do you love me? He won't, he won't slap your mouth shut. He, he won't stomp off in a fit. He understands. He's been tested in all points like as we are yet without sin. He knows what it feels like because of the circumstances around him on the cross to, to sense as if the Father had rejected him. He understands that. And I believe he responds the most aggressively toward honesty from our hearts. Lord, I'm questioning. I, I just need to know that, that you love me. And I believe he's able to answer that cry. So we can't get any further on this thing of hope unless we've also got in place that working reality of the Spirit of God inside us that my God loves me, that He is the lover of my soul, that I matter to Him, He cares about me, casting all our care upon Him, our anxiety upon Him, because He cares for us. He cares for us. Please let that in. The second question, not only does he care, but is he able? Is he able? I set my hope in him. Is he able to accomplish the hope? Does he have the power? Does he have the authority? Does he have the resources? I want to hope in you, Lord. I just need to be settled that that you're able. The, the, the scripture, the Bible from one end to the other is absolutely packed with verses that answer that question. I just want to re refer a couple of spots. Is he able? Luke chapter 1 verse 37, Gabriel is speaking to Mary. And Gabriel who stands in the presence of God has come to deliver a word, a word to Mary, a specific statement promising, declaring what her role was fixing to be. She would become the mother, earthly mother of the Messiah. Mary hears that. She does the math and she realizes, how can it be? Because I'm not married, because I've not been with a man. And then here's Gabriel's answer. For nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. Literally it reads, no word, no word will be beyond the power of God. Nothing can be spoken that he has spoken that will be beyond his power to produce. The, the word for there is rhema, not logos. 
it's it it may logos meaning the 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 full the full scope of god's revelation to man the whole of the bible in a sense but this is the word rhema specific statement specific sentence specific words in a line specific participial prayer whatever you want to say it's words no word in other words gabriel's saying mary Every word that I just spoke to you is not beyond the realm of Almighty God to accomplish in your behalf. There is no word that is impossible with God. Is he able? Yes, he's able. Yes, he's able. When do we learn when he's able, whether or not he's able? It's when he takes us on those midnight boat rides like the, like the twelve. Storm comes, we weren't expecting it, think we're going to die, but some way or another the Lord miraculously in the storm or in the season of famine or in the time of, of, of conflict, war, he proves himself mighty, he shows himself strong, is he able, there's no word impossible with God. Then this, this the, the section in Romans chapter 4 where Paul is talking about the faith that was working in Abraham to still believe God in his, in his late year, his and Sarah's later years, for a child, for a son. The son eventually came, but it was at the tail end of, 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 of their lives, in a sense, and, and their childbearing years was in the distant view of the rearview mirror. But Abraham was applauded. His hope was set in the Lord, and it says this about him in Romans, Romans chapter 4 and verse 17. He believed in the God who gives life to the dead and who calls into being that which does not exist. He set his hope. They, they, they couldn't medically, physically, no way for him to father a child, no way for Sarah to, to carry a child at, at, their, at their years. But his, his faith was not in what he could see. It says he was believing in the God who raises the dead and the God who calls into being what doesn't even exist. Is he able? If it doesn't exist, he can call it forth. Is he able? If it's dead, he can raise it to life again. If it's beyond human realms of thinking and possibility and opportunity, there is no word impossible with God. I can set my hope in a God whom I believe is that very thing. Does he care for me? By his mercy, by his grace, yes. Is he able? Yes, he is. 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 But then here's the third question. Will he do it? Will he do it? He loves me. I believe he's able. But will he do it for me? Will he fulfill my hope? Will he do it for me? I, I so often 
hear folks speak of, and I, I know it in my own walk, that I can sure think of other people besides myself who deserve the goodness and miraculous intervention of the Lord and the fulfillment of hopes and dreams. So much more do they deserve it to be done for them than me. And we can back ourselves out of the equation of whether or not we are viable targets for the God of hope to perform his miracle, miracle work of fulfilling our hope. Here's what I want to, I want to just, I want you to think about this in connection with this question. Will he do it? Go with me to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. We're going to read down through verse 9. Galatians 6 starting in verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, or a woman, a person sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, his own selfishness, and the fallenness of our humanity, that dark side of us, but the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The word there is translated in English corruption. It means literally decay, ruin, and destruction. Corruption means decay. That's a process. Ruin is a process. Destruction is a destination. You sow to the flesh. You sow to yourself. Sow to this fallen side. If it feels good, do it. Sow to the flesh corruption. You'll reap corruption. But then he says this, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal living. Another way to translate that, will reap unending living. So as the Spirit prompts you, so in such a way that it honors the Spirit of the Lord. The one who, who sows to the Spirit will get back from the Spirit Life, not death, the opposite of decay, ruin, and destruction, unending life, which has, has a, so much a part of it as joy and peace and all the things listed there, the fruit of the Spirit described. Then he says, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time, look at this now, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. We will reap. We will reap what? We will reap the harvest, the right kind of harvest from seeds that we have sown in due time. Will he do it? Will he do it for us? Will he do it for me? Here is one way to position yourself right in the guaranteed drop zone of fulfilled hopes in this life. And it is this. If you and I determine to sow a harvest that honors him, that pleases him, the promise is we will receive the harvest in due time. So what kind of seeds do we need to sow? This wonderful verse, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. What does the Lord require of you, O man? but to do what's right, to love mercy, 
and to walk humbly with your God. If when I live my life and I go to work, you go to work, we, we, we move through life. And as a part of moving through our lives, there is an awareness that the Lord has put within us that I need to do what's right because it's right. Not because it is expedient, not because it would get me to where I think I want to go, but right because it's right. You can be trusted to do what's right. You can be trusted, and the word, another word for this is loyal. You're loyal. You're loyal. Will he do it for me? Here's the practical part of that. If I'm understanding what it is that, the, that pleases the Lord, and I'm willing to make choices and take steps that I believe are consistent with the things that please him, then there will rise up in me and it will work in partnership with the Spirit of the Lord directing you and giving you insight as to what is right and what is wrong and what pleases the Lord. As you choose to do what is right, to step into what is right, there is also that companion surge within the Spirit that strengthens the hope within your heart. I'm doing what I believe, Lord, is right. And kind of coming up from the background, there is this, this strengthening surge of, I'll call it an emotion that, you know, not everybody else sees this as right. This may cost me if I pursue this choice that is right. But somehow, my hope that God is going to fulfill the dream that I have that somehow what's working on working right here, somehow God is pleased with, and somehow I'm not giving, I can't give up on my hope. It's stronger than ever, even though doing what is right is costing me greatly. Am I in here by myself? Have you ever known that? Have you ever felt that? That it seemed all the counsel, all the common sense, all the, the, the voices of wisdom around you is stop, stop, don't push it, don't press it, don't go there, don't do it. You can, you can overlook it, you can overlook it. You can just sue for peace. And, but somehow you can't. You've had to plant your feet. If it costs you everything, it costs you everything. But I'm telling you that even as you do that, led by the Spirit, the Spirit of God also has the ability, and He will do it, to put inside you, you're not crazy. They don't understand it, but you're not working for the applause of corporate America. You're working for the applause of heaven. And after corporate America has gone through all of its shifts and turns, the God of glory hadn't even gotten up from his throne. It's what he has said. And no word is impossible with God. So, so I, I, chew, I sow the seeds of trying to do what's right. My world is bigger. My vision is bigger than just the crew I work with. Or my immediate boss. My, my world is bigger. There's another voice louder. And it's that still, small, but indescribably strong voice of the Spirit to my heart. You stand. You stand. You stand with love in your heart. You stand with forgiveness in your hands. But you stand for what's right. Now, if I can hurry up and get through, I want to show you why that's so important, a verse that we want to end up with. So don't, don't keep interrupting me. 
I got to need to keep moving here. You reap what was sown. Do what is right. Love mercy. And walk humbly with our God. Those things. Loving mercy. Sowing the seeds of mercy. It doesn't mean you're a pushover. It doesn't mean that you don't have standards. It doesn't mean that you're just, you're just, you're just Play-Doh with no backbone. But it means that you care about people. It means that there's compassion in your heart for folks. Folks that may not be able to do anything for you, but there's something in your spirit that goes off when you see a need around you and there's a response into it. And instead of it being that, that, a, that a cold heart, a calloused heart, a, a, a calculating heart, a, a, a heart with a, with a, with a strong um, uh, sheath around it is, is, the, is what's applauded in Scripture. Here's, here's what Micah says for the Lord. You know what the Lord requires of you. You love the truth. You do what's right. But you love mercy. Not just observe it. Not just note it. Not just applaud it when you see it, but you love it. You love mercy. You love it when God shows mercy. You love to think about mercy. You love to imagine mercy in the lives of people. You rejoice in seeing the results of mercy. You love it. 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 Sow the seeds of loving mercy. Sow the seeds of standing for what's right. And what you're doing is you're sowing seeds and there is a promised harvest, Galatians 6. We will reap. Hope will come come true in due time. But here's this one, this last of the three. Micah says to walk humbly with your God. To humble means to stay under, to come under, and to stay under authority. To come under authority, to stay under authority. Now, Philippians chapter 2. I want you to notice this with me. There probably is no greater characteristic in the life of Jesus. No other characteristic that is the most recognized, it seems in the life of Jesus than this one, the humility of Jesus, the lowliness of heart of Jesus. Philippians 2 verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. This attitude that he's fixing to describe was also the attitude, the attitude. Somebody got an attitude. Somebody showed up, I've got an attitude. I've got an attitude. I came home with an attitude. <laughs> well, what's the attitude of Jesus? Here it is. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, that his position of oneness with God Almighty was something that was to be clung to held on to, that he would not give up, that he would not give up his position. It says, verse 7, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being found in in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
For this reason also, for this reason, what reason? That he humbled himself. How did he humble himself? He humbled himself to Pilate, the Roman governor or procurator. He came in under the authority to a substantial degree of the Jewish religious authorities. They were the ones who pressed Pilate to bring about the crucifixion. But here's the point. In conversation with Pilate, Jesus said to him, in effect, you would have no authority over me if it wasn't something that I have chosen to do. In fact, my father has given me 12 legions of angels for my protection at my beck and call that all of Jerusalem, all of Rome, all of the world could have been incinerated at that moment. But he had chosen to come in under authority. For this reason, that he humbled himself. Under earthly authority. Folks, listen, it's not that every teacher you ever had was a bad teacher. How do you go from Jesus to teacher? I, 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 I don't know, but I can. I believe it's here. You hadn't always had a sorry coach. Every boss that you've ever had, every working figure has not always been rotten. It could be that there's a big hunk of your heart that refuses to come in under authority, that refuses to bow. Even if you have to go through 65 jobs in your lifetime and go through 14 different domestic partners, you have determined that you will not be ruled by anybody, not even God. Here's the rest of this. For this reason, the reason that he came under the authority, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will one day confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Why was that authority bestowed? It was because he submitted to ultimate authority. If there is going to be the bequeathing of authority, it's going to have to come because the authority knows you can be trusted with authority. I got to show you one thing, one more thing before we go. Last book in your Bible before the maps, book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, He who is holy, this is Jesus speaking, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David and who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word 
and have not denied my name. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you, First Peter says, at the proper time. Humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God in this life is going to look something like, not entirely like, not exactly like, but something like the humbling of Jesus under what was the hand of God for him as he approached the cross. God was not absent. The plan of God was not absent. The plan of God was right on schedule. And it was necessary that Jesus should suffer, that he should suffer in the way that he did for the crimes that were being put upon him, the sins of the whole world. He humbled himself under the mighty hand of God. Folks, 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 your job may be hell for right now. Relationships may be in disarray. There may be all kinds of things going on. But if God has led you, if God has directed your steps and you find yourself in a place and it's not easy and you want to run and people around you are saying, you don't deserve that, you ought to check out. But somehow in your spirit, there is a yes to the call of God Stay right here. Stay in this place. You're not under the devil's covering. It may be the devil at work around you, but you are under the mighty right hand of God Almighty. They may think they're in charge. They're not in charge. The same one who says to the oceans there is a limit and no farther is the same one who says to evil in behalf of his children thus far and no further. But you have to trust him. There has to be a, something going off in your spirit that it's not what it looks like. It's not everything it looks like. And Lord, I believe you led me here. I believe you set me here. And I'm going to stay in until you move me, until the appointed time. Oh, no, let me show you something. This, this Revelation chapter 3, the, the, one, the one who says that he has, this is Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, who has the key of David. Who has, what does that mean? Scholars seem to be pretty much consistently unanimous on this understanding of what, the, that it's talking about earthly authority. Jesus is saying, I hold the key to earthly opportunity, to earthly authority. I open opportunities and nobody can close them. I close others and nobody can open them. So he's saying to this church that has been stressed and has been through some stuff, obviously, I hold the key of David. And I'm setting before you a door of opportunity. But before he says that, he says this at the first of verse 8. I know your deeds. 
I know your deeds. It's the word erga for deeds. We use the word the, the work, work. I, I know your, I know your steps. I know your walk. I know your employment. I know all the things about you. I know the things that you have done. It's a large word. It encompasses all the categories of activity for a human. But watch this. Jesus doesn't use the present tense when he says, I know. I know your deeds. He uses the perfect tense in the Greek, and here's what that means. I know the deeds that you did and have been doing in your past. I know them. To me, to, for the word know, it means that, that, that I, I know as if I have experienced them. Not just read about them, but I have been in, intimately involved in those deeds as far as my involvement and participation. I know what you did then. I know your works. I know your deeds. Years ago, decades ago, whenever. But here's the point. Those things that were done to you, those things that were done by you, all those years ago, because it's the perfect tense, it means that though it was done in the past, the reality, the vibrancy, the certainty, the reality of it is as real today as it was when it happened all those years ago. I know your deeds of yesterday. It's as if he's saying, as well as I know the deeds of things today. I wasn't absent. I wasn't asleep. You weren't on your own. I saw what they said. I heard what they said to you. I saw what they did to you. I knew those secret places and quiet places. I knew the schemes put up against you. And I knew where you stood tall. I even knew where you went away. You've strayed for a while. But even at that, I know your deeds. And here's what I know about you. You have little power. You're not real strong in yourself. You're not the strongest gorilla in the zoo. You have little power. But here's what you've done, and I know it because I was watching, because I saw it. You have kept my word. You guarded my word. You cherished, you hung on to, you protected, you set a garrison about what was my word to your heart. You guarded my word and you have not denied my name. You were loyal to me. You didn't turn your back on me. You didn't try to deconfess your faith in Jesus. You've not denied my name. And on the basis of that, I have chosen, I have willed it. I didn't ask for a vote. I didn't ask for permission. I didn't get a vote from the legislator or a vote from corporate America. Here is my key that only I have. And watch what I do with the key that only I have. I'm sticking it into the door of this opportunity for you. And against all odds and against all resistance, I unlock that door and I open that door of opportunity for you.
It may very well be that we don't know what that meant specifically to this church, this group of people. But something about, perhaps, hope for a breakthrough in their city. Hope for the reaching by means of the gospel of those they loved and prayed for and worked with. Maybe that's what it was. But it wasn't that he was going to just open the door and everything was going to happen. They would have to walk through it. The Lord loves to bless the work of our hands. Maybe that's what this is about. My brother and my sister, in those places when you felt so alone, you felt so out of step, you had to go back over it again and again, Lord, did you really say this to me? But somehow, some way, you couldn't move from that place of remaining under the mighty hand of the Lord. Somehow, as you kept living there, there kept being hope that would rise up in your heart. Maybe it's come to fruition, or maybe it hadn't. But you know what you've done? You have just flat out sown a good set of seed and one day there's going to be an awesome harvest coming back in. Why? Why? Because God said he'd do it that way. That the harvest would come in at the appointed time. The harvest would. Where does hope thrive? Hope thrives when I have that sense that he loves me. Hope thrives in that place where Somehow, I just believe, I just know he's able. He's able. And then hope thrives in a place where there's a sense working in my heart. Not because of my backing him in the corner and making him do it because of all my busyness for him. But just that I just, it's the way I've just chosen to live my life, desired to live my life, to sowing seeds that I believe honor him and resting in the fact that he will one day, he will one day bring in the harvest, bring in the harvest. You just go be so crazy as that. Go be so out of step as to live like that's the truth. You wrap your hopes around the invisible God who has a passionate heart, who has a mighty right arm, and who has the authority to knock everything out of the way to bring about his will. I'm saying to you, you're not crazy. You're not crazy. You're not crazy. 